So it's your turn now. Yes. Yes. The question was brought up if the Buddha has thoughts. The Buddha has thoughts. Was that the question? Does the Buddha have thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. The short answer is thoughts arose because he has a mind. He had a mind. And I didn't know the Buddha personally. I'm not that old. <laughs> when we have, we have eyes, and if they're working well, they'll see. We have a mind, and if it's working well, or usually even if it's not, thoughts arise. The question is, uh, which thoughts do we choose to act on or to attach to? And the Buddha had thoughts, but he also had absolute choice. My understanding with the Buddha is that he didn't suffer. Right. Can, my interpretation of that question has to do with there is no thinker behind the thoughts and right. not-self. Right. If your question is about not-self, that's a different topic. But, you know, I think... I think um, is that your question? Is that your question about not-self, the thinker behind the thoughts? So is there another question there? Like, are my thoughts okay? Or am I trying to get rid of thoughts? I guess uh, what I thought was, like, you had reached this ultimate state of enlightenment. It's like all of a sudden, like, you don't have all these crazy thoughts running around. Mm. Mm. I haven't gotten there yet. What happens with enlightenment is this is that the various different factors of um, ignorance are uprooted. And so there's four different stages of enlightenment. At each stage, there's different factors that get uprooted. And at the second and the third stage, anger and ill will and desire are uprooted. So that means that a person who has attained to the third state of enlightenment would not be experiencing lust or anger. Okay. But what happens is, is that when a mind gets concentrated, one of the telltale characteristics of the first jhana is, is that those crazy thoughts go into abeyance. And people think that's enlightenment. It's not, because as soon as the concentration finishes, the crazy thoughts can come back. They haven't been uprooted. But what is helpful is to understand how to let the mind settle so that one is not plagued 24-7 by all of this stuff, as well as how to work with it when it's there. Yes. Do you guys know any living people who are There's awakened moments, I think, for all of us, and um, awakened activity. Um, I don't know... In my, it's it's the elimination of all, and I think you could speak to this actually much more clearly. So, of all craving and all aversion and all ignorance. So, that means that um, someone could really just put a bag over their head and stop breathing, and the other person would be fine with it. And I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe I'm just saying that. But I don't know anyone who has uh, at all times enlightened activity. 
and I don't have a sense of um, of enlightenment as a goal um, in a, in a way, but more of a an opening to it, and we release layers around us of unenlightened activity by become by them becoming conscious, they released by themselves. But I don't know near enough about the the formal structure here. And I was just asking if there was, if you knew of any person living, because I know that, well, we're supposed to be dead people that have been enlightened. I mean, my answer is no. There's four stages of enlightenment. At any stage of enlightenment, you can be considered an enlightened person. Okay? There are many enlightened people. Many. And you probably wouldn't recognize it. Because the, the first stage of enlightenment is actually not that uncommon. There are many. And in a monastery, they would never, ever tell you. Well, in my, the monastery that I lived in, we would never tell you. In other monasteries, they would. But it's private. So, you know, but there are people who are enlightened. And Deepama had attained to the third level of enlightenment. Ajahn Chah was reported to be an arahant. Um, you know, there are arahants alive today. It's not that often you get to hang out with them. But they, you know, I have heard. Now, I'm not an arahant. So, because I'm not an arahant, I'm hearing something about somebody. I don't know if it's true or not. Mostly, it's not so important about what's happening with other people. Mm -hmm. I think really what's mostly important is is actually to stay with one's own practice. However, that being said, it's something pretty far out to be in the presence of somebody who's that cooled out. (laughs) That's what I've heard, and so I was wondering who I could be in the presence of. Well, you know, a lot of meditation masters have attained quite a lot, but it's usually not listed on the internet what their attainment is. <laughs> so, but when you find somebody that's, you know, peaceful and cooled out, then go hang out with them. It doesn't matter what their attainment is. Let me just say that I, I have a little bit of a personal thing about the enlightenment question because it's a concept. And we can get so hooked, and it's fine, it's fine to have it, but not to hook into that concept because it creates an idea that we're looking for something and or to be like someone. But I, I really liked your answer, just hang out with who, you know, you feel like you can learn from and then see what unfolds. I get confused when people, um, you know, use words like desire and, and lust and stuff, um, and the relationship to sensuality. Because, like, for example, when we did that eating meditation, mm-hmm. um, and I really focused on my food, mm-hmm. it was like uh, ecstatic. Yes. Like the food tasted so good. Yes. And. So that was a sensual experience. Yes. And, um, you know, I have a desire to eat. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. I, you know, I wouldn't uh, resist my desire to eat because it starved to death. Right. <laughs> um, so, but obviously, you know, um, there's a difference between 
that experience, which to me, when you really got into it, was incredibly sensual, but it released craving. Because I found I needed to eat less. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. There's a difference. Well, the first thing to get, and it's a hard one, because there's a tendency to admonish yourself for when desire and craving arises. And desire and craving arises because it's a natural part of us. We wouldn't be here on this planet if it weren't for the desire and craving probably of our parents. It's like it's built in. We wouldn't be able to survive without the desire for food. The question is, does it run you, and do you have choice? And most of us don't have choice. It's just, you know, there's the chocolate, and then, you know, it's like, I'm not going to eat the pie. I'm not going to eat the pie. And then all of a sudden, the pie is gone. <laughs> there you go. There's, there's no choice. And so it's just, and then you can choose. Is this wholesome? Is this something I want to put in my body? Do I need it right now? Is it a good thing? Is it going to... And so and it's not like a trip that you lay on yourself. It's like you can choose... I was extraordinarily attached to potato chips. And I just couldn't, I mean, it's like once I started, that was it. Now, this was when I first started practicing. And I didn't have a choice. It's like I'd walk into a party, there were the potato chips, and I couldn't, you know, I mean, I would resist it. But there was always this, ah, <laughs> painful thing that would go on. I couldn't be, I was talking to somebody, and there were the potato chips. <laughs> And they would, you know, it's like there's the bungee cord that was invisible. It was always there. And it was torture. After practice, I began to see how it was. And so it's like I had to get to know this desire because it was pulling my life away from me. I didn't, I couldn't be happy in, you know, in just a regular conversation if there were potato chips in the room. And so <laughs> I worked with potato chips until I really met desire. And I go, oh, I see you. I didn't want to eat all those potato chips. You know, there's not enough potato chips in the world to satisfy me. So they're not satisfying. That's why. <laughs> it's just, and so are we doing what nourishes us? Are we doing what satisfies us? Is, are we sexually acting out, or does it lead to our heart opening? You know, it's like this is, this is something just to be able to question. It's very, very, very simple. Is it leading us the place we want to go, this craving? And maybe it is. And there are also different pulls. And I distinguish desire from pulls. We have a pull to enlightenment. We have a pull to come to retreat. And it's different than a craving. A craving says to you, I'm going to die if I don't get that. I have to have that. And not only that, I have to have it right now. And the, and the other thing is more in alignment with something into your truth. And if you can't tell, look at the result. Was this a wholesome thing to do? It may not have turned out the way I wanted it to, but it was still wholesome. As a matter of fact, it may have turned out better than I wanted it to. But we can, we can judge. It's like learn to use your own sense. And it's like if everybody that you know says you got to go see this group. You know, they're incredible. And it's not right for you. Don't do it. And it's hard because we go, we're going against a flow a lot of times when we're in touch with our own truth. But I don't know how I got from that. Mm -hmm. Great.
I'm sorry, I went on. <laughs> no, it's good, and it's important. But the question or the point that I think that you're making, which I think is really fundamental, and obviously, you know, I, I, this this topic is a big topic, and so I didn't get into as much detail as I wanted to. But one of the characteristics of a traditional society is that they split spirituality and the body. Okay, and one of the things about a postmodern world is we're wanting to integrate and have an imminent as well as a transcendent relationship with our spirituality. So part of what I hear your question is about is about the the aliveness that comes when you are in right relationship with your senses, which is completely different from being overtaken by desire. Because as you described, when you are embodied and completely connected, the experience is less craving. But that is a fundamental and incredibly important distinction, and it's part of the reason why it's women's time now. Because, you know, this is something, it's not as if we've got a corner on the market. We don't have a monopoly on this. I know lots of men that are embodied. But for a variety of reasons, it, it sometimes is a little bit easier for us to get there, you know? And so, you know, this ability to touch that which is transcendent, but also stay in our body and stay in our relationships with each other, that to me is one of the crucial transformations that needs to happen in this postmodern world. And so the ecstasy with the salad is a perfect example yeah. of that. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Something that we wouldn't experience if we were just... Yeah. Chugging on. That's great. I wanted, because you're talking uh, about embodiment, and the question that I... Well, it's not so much... But what is the question, just logistically, I found that the inside dialogue was... And I, and even though I resisted the heck out of it, um, for my own reasons, but it was really profound for me. And I'm working with embodiment a lot actively in my life right now, seeing that to not do it is uh, harmful, to not actively strive to do that. So my question is, where can we um, find out more about nonsense? I mean, I know there's a lot of ways to get into learning how to in your body, um, to be embodied, but this specific way of communication and doing that was really awesome. Well, Gregory Kramer is the person, and he teaches retreats, and I have asked to join the teacher's council of his community, and that's in process. No. And Sharon is one of the senior teachers there, and she was very happy to teach an insight dialogue retreat with me that would be just insight dialogue. So that would be probably maybe two or three sittings of silence a day and the rest insight dialogue. Mm. And I would love to do that. But what I need is to have a group of people who want to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And then for her and I to coordinate a schedule. Gregory was going to come out here and do it with me. But my life is so crazy and unstable, I couldn't figure out a time and a place and anything that made any sense. So I let that go for this May, but we might be able to drag him out another time. And an important teaching of Buddhism is, is impermanence. All things are impermanent. I was just wondering if you could speak to 
how not to get sucked into nihilism as a result of you know, thinking about that. You go to a conceptual place with it. Impermanence experienced is not um, it is very different than the concept of impermanence. And so coming into this moment and realizing that this moment, just when you came to retreat, you, you were in a different, you, you were different. Who you were was totally different. You know, your whole metabolism has changed. You know, your temperature has changed. Your heart beats differently. And it's, it's kind of dramatic when you come into a retreat and then you go. But then, and you'll see more when you leave. But um, it's always changing anyway. It's not often so dramatic. And if you can stay with this process, you actually, uh, there's a transformation that happens where you realize impermanence. And it's not an intellectual realization. It's an embodied realization that uh, leads to freedom. It doesn't lead to nihilism. That is perfect. And impermanent, when you get impermanence, it's like, well, the only thing that's left is to be here. And, but then it's not like you, you think it, and I should be here. It's like, well, it, there is no other place to be. It's all, all the rest you get is fantasy. Um, at some point, can we hear about your bear survival? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, in one of the uh, interviews, Alma, uh, you were talking kind of about relationship and how people get attracted, missing parts, and other characteristics, and it really reminded me of Harville Hendricks. And I thought, is that part of what you brought together? Because it didn't sound like Buddhism. It's not Buddhism. It's Harville Hendricks. <laughs> <laughs> and I was speaking to my first meditation teacher, Jack Engler, who uh, wrote a book, not with Harville Hendricks, but with Dan Brown and Ken Wilber, on the nature of the psychology of the self. And this was... I don't know how many decades ago, but he said, Harville Hendricks is absolutely accurate. And this stuff not only is true for intimate relationships, it's also true for your work partner, and it's also true for what happens in community. And so one of the things that happened in the community, you know, I was describing the kind of, you know, the time zones of, you know, the lack of safety and then the movement towards safety and coherence and congruence. And that was because the sisters started doing work. And the work that we were doing was to find out, you know, the kind of stuff that had happened in our early childhood and what was being projected onto the others in the community. You know, and so, you know, we would have somebody come into the into the monastery and do intensive two day seminars with us. And for the first several years it was just shit shoveling. You know, get to your corner, all right. This is your stuff, and that is their stuff. You know, because the projections were so complicated and entwined and entangled and enmeshed, we had no idea whose stuff was anybody's stuff or what. <laughs> so Harville Hendricks 
actually rates what he's up to and up against and saying is really accurate. It's, you know, it's really true. That's what happens. So, you know, for me, you know, part of the vision that I have is to create a community that is psychologically sophisticated and supporting of positive attachment as a mechanism for allowing letting go. Now, somebody who's less sophisticated would say that's what Sangha is supposed to be. But my experience is that's not what happens. A lot of time the people come to a monastery because they think the monastery is going to be snake oil and everything is going to go voop voop and be gone. <laughs> and I can assure you there ain't no voop voop. Now, different people have different frameworks and people would look at it in terms of karma, you know. But psychologically it's accurate, it's astute and when you have that understanding and are able to work on that level and being able to track your own unconscious mechanisms as they're being projected onto other people, there's a lot less chaos in community. And the same is true in intimate relationships. And there are tools now and skills that are available that were not available ten years ago. And there is quite a lot, and this is not through Buddhism, but, you know, so much out there that I encourage people to find and get the tools that they need to work. And it's very freeing, very healing, and the relationship becomes a container in which you can begin to release and let go. What would be your sense about Harville Hendricks and his work? I thought it was great. Yeah. And I think he's one tool. And it's very, very, very appropriate for a lot of people a lot of times, but sometimes it's some... doesn't quite fit. Ju- no, it doesn't not fit. Uh-huh. It's just not the right tool at that moment. Yeah. And uh, the NBC is incredible, and a lot of it's... Uh, most of it is about owning your stuff, but there's different ways that we can do this, and sometimes we're just not quite ready yet... And we still want to keep the relationship together, but we're not quite there yet (laughs) to own everything. So we still need skillful communication skills. We still need, you know, some some ways to work. And we still we need to understand the partner's limitations deeply, you know, and our own, (laughs) and acknowledge them and bow to them. And because you know, if you're not enlightened in your relationship, how are you going to make it work? So there, there's a lot out there, a lot of ways, and I encourage you to find them. What I'm, what I'm noticing is that in this field of relationships, um, I'm noticing how many people are bringing in um, mindfulness of body. Great. Yeah, it's very, very helpful as a tool. Absolutely. Yeah. And the Dhamma dialogue to learn to be able to speak. Well. You know, but you don't have to do that in your whole life. You just have to. You know, you think that's impossible. How can we talk like this and pause? You know, we got to get the kids out the doors. <laughs> but um, it doesn't. It, all it takes is moments and times. You know, you do it once a week. Set a time once a week, and, and you have a time where that's what you're going to do. And you know, can do it with books if it suits you. You know, there's CDs. There's 
all this stuff available, so find find a way to find what works for you. And try several, because some of them won't, you won't like the tone or the way the person talks or whatever. You know, Stephen, just to go back to your point, you know, I, I, I started out with a, a kind of real strong determination. You know, I was really, I was one of these people where nibbana or bust, you know. And, and I really felt that if I meditated long enough and hard enough, then that was really going to be the answer to everything. And after 20 years, it wasn't. And I realized it wasn't because I hadn't done it hard enough. You know, I had put every single ounce of effort and intention and energy and right circumstance into it. And there were large aspects of my nature I didn't have access to. And so it was circumstantial you know, based on my own inability to resolve some of my own stuff, that I began to think, well, maybe what I need is a different approach. And I have never regretted that. You know, I just I was just flabbergasted by the layers of fear and self-hatred that I didn't understand were driving me, mm-hmm. and how compressed anger had been in my body, and what that was doing to my health and my immune system. I had no clue, let alone my relationships, you know. So, yeah, I mean, for me, it was circumstantial. And then, you know, when I started doing that work personally, I began to see tremendous shifts. And they were not just psychologically. They then supported my ability to use the meditation for the kind of depth that it was intended to. So they were kind of in, um, I'm not sure, in sympathy with each other synchronicity with each other. Is there anyone else in the Buddhist hierarchy or leadership that is seeing the world the way you are? Where women should have a voice, where community has to be different, or are you the revolutionary? There's lots of people who think women should have a voice. Lots. And most of the nuns that I, uh, well, the nuns that are in California that I know feel that. This vision of community, I haven't heard anyone speak of. And so, you know, when I came out of England, I think maybe you got a, a window into the, the challenge of what that was for me. I had no clue about how difficult it was going to be. I just knew that I didn't have a choice. But when I came to this country, I was shell-shocked. You know, it took quite a lot just to be able to let my nervous system unravel from all of that. And, you know, starting an organization and developing a community and taking care of my father. And, you know, I was, I was totally overextended. And so, you know, the insight that I've had more recently is, is, is that what would be good for me to do now is to get my health back together because I've had some health problems and to write. And so rather than, you know, speak in small numbers to share some of this, my story, but the vision that comes through what I've lived through and see what happens with that. That's the insight that I've had is do less teaching and traveling, do more writing and see if, because when I speak about it, I see that there's a lot of interest. You know, there's a lot of interest. But this vision, you know, the vision that I have is a little bit like a Dhamma village. 
you know, where there's monastics, like, for example, this property, you know, this property is ideal. You know, the monastics would be living in kutis on the hill, and this valley would be for the lay community. There'd be something like a, a cooperative housing community, there'd be a senior facility, there'd be a hospice, there'd be places for kids, so that it would be a Dhamma village, you know, where life would happen, but it would be based on Dhamma and maybe even Dana. But, you know, that will take a small army, you know. And so what I needed to realize was is that until I have a peer team of people who are elders or peers, so I consider Terry a peer, you know, people who are senior in the Dhamma and feel committed to allowing this thing to birth, then I need to be a hermit, a solitary, and live like a solitary, rather than a solitary trying to build something that a small army would be able to do. You know? And how did you and Terry find each other for this retreat? I called her up and I said, would you like to help me do this retreat? <laughs> <laughs> and I was honored. I know just vaguely that Thich Nhat Hanh has tried to implement in home village or the monasteries this similar kind of communal lifestyle, including some psychological processing. They have a system for to do similar work. I was wondering if you had any more insight into it or if that seems to be working or if it's similar. I just, before I came back to Colorado, I spent three weeks in a branch monastery of theirs in San Diego. And, you know, first of all, it was lovely because there were 21 nuns there, you know. And so I spent a lot of time these last few years without nuns, you know. So it was just wonderful being with nuns. And I was so delighted because a lot of the vision that I have, he's implementing in that context. But um, it's a different tradition, and it's very, very Vietnamese. You know, and so a, a Vietnamese culture would look different than a, a culture that's not Vietnamese. And I was there for three weeks, and they certainly were very welcoming and very kind. But there were some things that I wasn't invited to because they were for residents only. So I would need to be there much longer or have much more trust to really see how they operate. But I was very curious. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm curious. Um like what's an example, or how is, is that culture particularly Vietnamese? All of the monastics in the nuns' community are either Vietnamese nationals or Vietnamese American. And all of the monks, except for three, are Vietnamese or Vietnamese American. And all of the Asian people coming are Vietnamese or Vietnamese American. I did not see one Asian person there who was not Vietnamese or Vietnamese American. No, the cultural diversity is much greater. They've got much more diversity. Uh, last night you shared um, an observation you had when, um, in monastic communities in Asian cultures that the dual approach you had was to have a passion for enlightenment use of passion to know dissolve intimately and in Asian cultures we kind of skip knowing these developmental stages or knowing what we skipped um, with children and so I was curious um, your experience or 
relationship or the way, what your approach was when you're trying to uh, investigate uh, with other veterans or monks um, that were from different cultures, how did you have that conversation? I don't know that I would have said they skipped it. I just think that the context that people come from Asia is so sufficiently different that it actually comes through their upbringing. It's not that they skipped it. Well, I guess not skip it, but to um, directly acknowledge or to uh, work with and know that. Because I think in, in just from my experience, we find it virtuous to avoid acknowledging emotional experience. Um, and that's so clearly so much a part of the practice um, and what is transformative. So I guess it's not more of a question. But you see, you know, in the monastery, we had a Berlin Wall emerge between those people who were talking about their feelings and those people who thought this is not what Buddhism is about. And in fact, it split the community. And so there were people who refused to do any of these community processes or talk about stuff. And I remember talking to one monk, uh, just a sweet monk. He's just so lovely. I just really have a lot of fondness for him. He says, I'm a jungle monk. I don't do feelings. I would just as soon go to a dentist and have my teeth pulled without <laughs> anesthesia than sit in one of those groups and talk about feelings. <laughs> Verbatim. <laughs> I put the drama queen spin on it, but those were his words. <laughs> so we had a problem. And I think one of the things that happened was because the nuns were cornered, um, you know, we were in a situation where our dysfunction, I think one of the things, and this is a generalization, but I think it might be correct. Men can tolerate dysfunction much better than women can. <laughs> our community was so dysfunctional, we were drowning. And so we were cornered. You know, we had to deal with it. Because if we didn't, we were going to die you know, not physically die, but spiritually die or die as a community. And so as a community of, of sisters, you know, it took a while to get everybody on a similar page. But eventually we got there about the value of doing this work. The monks never had that experience. And part of that was because of the way they process. Part of that has to do with their much greater tolerance for dysfunction. Part of that had to do with they had more places where they could go. So if they had community dynamics, they would resolve it by sending somebody to another monastery. <laughs> we had two monasteries for 30 years. That was it. And so it's like you had to figure it out. And so we were cornered. And so because of that, we had to do this work. And we got good at it. And in fact, it was one of the things that I felt just really really proud of to have been part of a, a community of women that was able to name and touch the unbelievable complexity of what we were navigating and to begin to hold the space where we could be there for each other and not do what we had done which was undermine betray side with the monks to the masculine 
or coalesce and then fracture at different times. And so by the time the community by the time I left, the community of nuns was actually very healthy and then it, then it was decimated. I mean, it was just absolutely decimated with the kind of patriarchal retrenchment. More than half of the nuns left. Eleven left, eight stayed. Of the eleven that left, more than half disrobed. It's decimated. Does that answer? Yeah. So as for a revolutionary, I mean, people say that to me all the time. I don't feel myself as a revolutionary. I feel myself as being passionate about evolution. That what's needed is evolution. And for whatever reason, and I don't understand why, I'm called to give it voice. This is a vision that has been speaking through me for about ten years now. And, you know, I think it's more a question of up to you rather than up to me as to whether or not it's going to happen. How many other people feel resonant with us and feel like, yeah, they want to see that it happens? I mean, I don't know what's, how it's going to make it happen, but I just know that my job is to show up to show up, to take care of myself, and to do whatever I can to give this voice and let it go. It will or it won't. It has very little to do with me. And hopefully I can stay moderately sane in the process, (laughs) which is no small task. (laughs) Wow. Heaven help me if I hadn't had those rocks. My goodness. Do you think this is a good place for shifting gears? Yeah. Yeah.